From the Clock Tower Mountain Air, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in Season 2 as we make our way through the Ransom Trilogy. In this episode, we are talking about Out of the Silent Planet, chapters 8 through 14. And spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us, we're going to be spoiling all kinds of things from chapters 7 to 14 today. Our next episode will be Out of the Silent Planet, chapters 15 through 22, plus the epilogue. Well, for housekeeping today, you have a note. Uh, Before we jump to your note, here's my thought for the day. The new space music is cool. Yeah. So who gets the credit for this? Yes, Randall Hale. Randall Hale. He does our music. He did the music for the first season as well. It came on when we were listening to the first episode last week, and I got excited to listen. (laughs) So pretty awesome. Uh, So your note, space, air quotes, trilogy, yeah, we, we've been calling it the Space Trilogy, and the publishers call it the Space Trilogy. If you get the trilogy together all in one um, in one book, it's going to be called the Space Trilogy. And I think Lewis is rolling in his grave when he hears that term space, because his whole point about these books is to change our minds from space to the heavens. Christiana Hale has a book called Deeper Heaven. And she talks about this. That's like her, her intro, like, stop calling it the Space Trilogy. And I, and I totally agree. Obviously, we, we, I have to agree because that's what C.S. Lewis talked about. Ransom himself in the little quoted part that we had in our first Out of the Silent Planet episode says it was wrong, wrong to think of it as space. And the, the word heavens is a much better term. And because the Heaven Trilogy, I think, is maybe a little more misleading even than that. <laughs> the I Heavens s- Trilogy. Still, I feel like we disappointed him. Now we've got this space theme. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, no, so, so, so not space as in like, I actually think that some versions of space, um, the next generation, <laughs> Star Trek, they do they don't just throw you out into the the empty void or vacuum and so some of the theme obviously the way that that motif that uh musical theme doesn't take away yeah. from the idea of the heavens in fact i think that part doesn't need to change in fact when, while i was thinking about this if you've seen the movie interstellar yeah there's a moment where it's interstellar has kind of that idea too they go into the into the wormhole and the Anne Hathaway character has this interaction with a fourth dimensional being. We find out later who that is, but there, she has like this spiritual moment in the vacuum of space and then the going into the black hole and it being not just where everything goes to just crush and die, the Tesseract, right? That's what they even call it in, in the movie even certain modern interpretations of space allow for this transcendent quality. And I think when we try, we get just into that materialistic mindset of space, we're not even doing justice to some of the more poetic minds of our modern time as well. If you just assume that the whole ethos of our modern culture is just materialism, you're not paying attention. There's, there's kind of this revival and maybe not, always in the right direction, but there's a revival of 
spiritualism, of transcendentalism. And so, I, I you know, the, these books, that's one of the reasons that I think they, these were written in the 30s. It's crazy because they feel like they could have been written right now. Yeah, I agree. So anyway, we'll be calling it the Ransom Trilogy from now on. I've heard it called the Cosmic Trilogy, but now that we know that Narnia is pretty cosmic as well. Did you have any housekeeping? Nope, that's it. I'll do the summary then. The summary of chapters 8 through 14. After a lonely night on the planet Malacandra, Ransom encounters another sentient species, the Hrosa, and is welcomed into their village. He lives with the Hrosa for several months, learning their language and customs, astonished and confused by their elevated morality, despite their primitive technology. Through them, he learns of the Eldilla, the chief of which, Oyarsa, is regarded by all as the ruler of Malacandra, under the direction of the even more enigmatic Maleldil. Ransom's first successful encounter with an Eldil is a summons to a place called Meldalorn, where he is to meet with Oyarsa. Nice. I left out a lot of descriptions because I didn't want this summary to get too long. But the Eldilla are like a spiritual being. Yeah. Neither breathe, breathe nor breed or die. Are they Chamon? <laughs> I don't know. That's they say, oh, the Cer- kind of. <laughs> the Cerrone would know. Yeah. Cer- yeah. I think, who is it? He always says it's like a kind of now. Now. Yeah. A, now. <laughs> The I did appreciate the the person reading these is doing a great job. Yeah, Jeffrey. I Howard. do enjoy it. So for themes, what do you got? Fear. I think we're continuing with fear. I'm not sure if we isolated fear as a theme last week, but fear and kind of how it plays in with that state of your mood and your and your digestion, how fear kind of eliminates nuance and makes you fall back onto just the desperate desire for familiarity. Yeah. You know, what you know, if fear is of the unknown, then familiarity would be what puts you just in the realm of the known. And then the way that he, that Ransom even sees the Hrasa, he has to change his mental perspective in order to not be repelled by or repulsed by them because he needs to put it in a way where he can see them as familiar rather than other. If he thinks of them as as men, then all of their external qualities take them away from... They become a monster. Yeah, they become a monster. But if he thinks of them as animals, then all of their external qualities or their nuanced qualities bring them closer to manhood or human humanhood. And um, that is why the way that he has to think about it in order to feel comfortable around them. And it's interesting because it feels like there's several different things. It talks about that the thirst for knowledge when he saw, oh, this opportunity to be able to kind of be the pioneer in this new language and bring this back to earth. That was something that pulled him closer to them. And there are other things that brought him closer and then other things that obviously was were repulsive. And you see him kind of vacillating between these different yeah, things. Yeah, here we get curiosity as like a good thing. You know, with uh, with um, Diggory, it's not really that good. But in this case, because his curiosity, and he's a philologist, his language is so important to him that noticing that the Haras is using a language 
bubbles up his curiosity so much that he overcomes his fear. And maybe it's just sometimes we need that assistance, that little crutch to get us to the point where we break through our fear and then we can do something interesting. Malcolm Gladwell says, self-consciousness is the enemy of interestingness. And I think that's just so deep, so accurate, and why when we're talking, and I'm, I'm more prone to this than you are, Dan, but <laughs> whenever I get self-conscious and talk about myself too much, that's when I stop being interesting. I'm boring enough where I don't feel, I feel as excited thinking about myself. So. <laughs> Not true. Uh, no, uh, no the, I was just thinking that you, that's an interesting comparison between Diggory and Ransom. Where do you think the distinction distinction lies? Because Aslan points out that Diggory ringing the bell was, was a mistake or, you know, it was... A lot of evil came from it. A lot of evil came from it. But it seems like Ransom's curiosity mostly brought good and learning and knowledge and so it seems like it's a neutral thing that can be used for evil or good and so curiosity itself isn't a vice it's a uh it's like unity we i think we talked about this unity itself isn't good because you can be unified and actually do a lot of evil with unity yeah <laughs> much more than you could have done without it but it's an intensifier it's like salt it's a seasoning um, and I think curiosity is is similar. If the curiosity is to, is seeking out your own ego, like Diggory was doing, trying to show that he's braver or smarter than Polly, it's going to lead to more of that first thing, that ego is being the driving force and curiosity being the methodology by doing it. And with Ransom, he's stuck in the fear. Fear is kind of a self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is ego. Yeah. And it's the curiosity that takes him out of that ego. Yeah. And so it's almost a selfish or selfless curiosity, a curiosity to something greater than himself. I like that. Yeah. And luckily he has the skills and he put in the work being a philologist to be so like interested in something in language itself um that that's what draws him out hmm. and the curiosity is merely the tool we're we're already kind of hitting around this the one note i made with themes was around subjectivity and lewis does such a cool job of showing ransom almost when we're talking about that vacillation or him changing so much his perspective and at one point him playing with the the kids the harassian the kids i don't know the yeah. whelps <laughs> you know it, it almost feels like he's talking about it as this grandfather or just like the the joy of children and it's very feels very familiar and and, and but then at the same time, you see it's you see him learning and leveling up. And each time it's I think this is the second time in this section. We saw it again in chapters one through seven when he was out in the heavens, not space, <laughs> uh, where he talks about he looked back at him all his old self and saw himself as immature. And then again, it happens on the planet. I think it's chapter 13, 14, where he looks back and sees himself as immature. And so each time you see him leveling up and then I think we'll get to later a part that we both really liked when he finally makes a resolution that's going to stand in spite of his moods 
and appetites and whatever else. And that's something that so far you haven't seen from him. It seems like he's always wavering, going back and forth. So subjectivity, just I think Lewis is pointing towards how subjective we are as human beings that like it's really tough for you to really pull out the emotions and your biases and all those things that you bring into everything you're experiencing. The materialist has to deny subjectivity. Yeah. In order for what they're saying to be true. And just knowing subjectivity just has so much evidence and data. The materialist is the non-empiricist. Yes. Because they're not paying attention. And they're not paying attention honestly to themselves or the way that they are interpreting what they see. Now, not to say that you can change with your interpretation objective reality, but to be aware of that and how you as a player in that objectivity We'll see that come up with every one of our bullet points for the chapters. Yeah. I don't think that we really, that I don't, I don't know if I even mentioned the planetary theme. It's, it's so obvious because we're on the planet Mars, Malacandra, but if you do read planet Narnia, even though it says Narnia there, it, there, uh, Michael Ward talks about how it comes up in this trilogy as well. Hmm. So obviously we're in Mars, the martial theme will be is saturated or the whole book is saturated with that martial theme to the point where it's almost silly. Even, even things like him going through a hedge makes sense from the medieval cosmology perspective. Why is that? Just the, there's, there's something about the like forests. There's like this selvage. I don't know. I can't remember what the word is, but like Sylvester, like wildness to the martial spirit and, and breaking through with boldness and kind of intruding. And and when, when I think of Mars, I think of battle. Yes. And yet one thing that Ransom is trying to figure out is who's the dominant species and how come they haven't eliminated each other. Yeah. But I feel like the hunt for the, what's the name of the? Hanakra. Beast, the Hanakra. Um, very that martial. feels martial yeah. to me. They're just their whole philosophy around w the Hanakra and why they chase it and why they they feel like it's this struggle, but it's also beautiful and poetic and yeah. all those things. So you, we get both the negative and the positive of the martial spirit in the way that Ransom's questioning, also in the way that they that the Harasa approach it. Um, but things, even things that you might not notice, like the fact that the top the the Harandra is barren, barren and like a wasteland and huh. that the Hondramat is the refuge. Think of the trenches in World War I, the war that C.S. Lewis fought in and, Rans and Ransom or, or Tolkien also fought in, that the, the scorched earth and the lack of birds, there's even later we'll see that, that there used to be birds and there aren't anymore yeah. on Malacandra and that these trenches are where they're high, they're almost like protected by Maleldil in this, in this refuge, and stuff sim simple like that, and even the animalistic quality of the Harasa and them being like warhounds, and also the the barking, and and there's there's a lot more that probably isn't doesn't come to mind with the martial attitude and or Mars in our modern understanding, astrological understanding or motif of Mars, but in the cosmological, the idea of, I think of like a Viking putting on a berserker, that, that shirt and just going wild into, into battle. 
um, a coldness, a briskness. I'm, I think of mountain peaks in mist. Um, you know, being there's Braveheart comes to mind. There's the, the <laughs> after the wedding scene, you know, and and them being naked in the cold forest, and it's like, oh my gosh, why would they do that? And and just that that Scottish kind of feeling, maybe the the American perception. I don't know if they have the same perception there as they do uh, as we do here of Scotland being kind of wild and pictish and uh, warlike and you know Highland games that sort of thing. And that all fits within this Mars motif. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, let's take a break and then we'll jump into the chapters. Okay. Welcome back. Good to be back. So this is experimental. It, uh, last I time, I felt like everything we've done so far has been experimental. <laughs> Last time, I felt like we weren't very organized in the way that we went through. And looking through this, obviously, I'm kind of forcing something that probably wasn't intended to be like this. Um, but the chapters 8 through 14 work very well as a chiasm. A chiasm is a poetic form that's symmetrical in its stanzas or in its points. So you start with a general theme and you go specific and then you come back out into the more general theme. And so the central point is what both the end and the beginning are focused toward. So the layout that I kind of want to go through, and maybe I, I, I feel <laughs> hesitant to commit to this because I'm, my thoughts are never really that organized, but we start with a meeting, a meeting of Ransom and the Hross, and then the journey to the Hross village. And then living, just the kind of him experiencing what it's like to be a cross before he really understands it. And then this conversation with Hyoi, where he starts to really understand what it means to be a cross or Malachandrian. And then he gets to experience again. So that, that learning from Hyoi is the focal point of these chapters. And then after he's learned, he gets to re-experience living a Hrossian or Malachandrian lifestyle as they go on the hunt for the Hanarchy. Experience. And then after that, another journey. See, we're coming back out. And then to another meeting. And it's almost like <laughs> he's going at something, he's taking a pre-quiz or pre-test and then he's not figuring out very well. And then he gets instruction and then he gets another chance at it. And that second chance doesn't mean that he's just going to go about it all like with no problem. Then we see what, what elements will attack us even after we've been instructed. So that's kind of what I have as far as keeping ourselves kind of organized through the chapters. So let's start with the meeting. Ransom is scared by seeing a sorn which is as far as he's concerned this the monster's out to get him monster that wants to sacrifice him he's got all of these influences of his own thoughts and minds and the population of his mind with the terrors of alienness of foreignness that he could almost call it a xenophobia of just discomfort and fear because of lack of familiarity and in escaping, running away from one, he comes to the river and he sees another animal. 
and he's scared of it as well, but he notices that it starts talking to something. He doesn't know what it's talking to, but he notices that it has language. He can tell because of a lifetime of linguistic study. And then he gets excited. Yeah, he gets excited. What did you have from that meeting with the cross? Yeah, I think the first thing that stood out was that I thought I love that it was that opportunity for knowledge. And Lewis makes the point about how the thirst for knowledge can just trump everything when you really have that hunger and thirst for it. And that's what pulls him out. And then they sit there and they kind of go back and forth. They both want to leave, but they both want to stay type of feeling. He compares it to courtship. Yeah. yeah right. Courtship. And I, they, they share food together. They share, share this experience and, and an alcoholic drink an alcoholic specifically. Drink. Yeah. I think Lewis really appreciated that version of, of not alcoholism, but <laughs> <laughs> making <laughs> <think> a friend <laughs> over a good drink. <laughs> yeah. There's some, there's some aspect. I'm not, I'm not a alcohol drinker, so I, I don't really, you can almost envy this quality of that type of social drinking, obviously, because it's so seldom coupled with prudence and temperance <laughs> that that's one of the reasons I avoid it. I, he's made points against teetotaling Christians in the, in, uh, I'm thinking of the voyage of the Don Treader at the beginning. Yeah. And you can see he's kind of making this point. And even though I have a different type of lifestyle, like, no, I see. I think I see if you point. met a Harasa, you might yeah, that's share true. a drink with that's him. That's true. <laughs> the, the, the meeting of two different species, I'm not going to do the, the condescending. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> my morals are better than yours. <laughs> Besides that, I mean, did he really have that conversation or he handed him a drink and he just exactly. took um, so obviously that's something that I wrestle with as far as my own morality and how, what's the term? Is it, uh, is it, um, sanctimonious? Yeah. Maybe I'm <laughs> a little too sanctimonious. But what about you? What did you see in that interaction? Well, like you were saying, talking about curiosity, um, if it's taking you out of yourself, I think the, the work that Ransom did before the, the desire for intelligence, not being afraid of truth was one of those things that he needed in this moment if he wasn't going to just stay stay bogged down in his own fear. And just sometimes we do need a kickstart or something to get us out of ourselves, be it pain, the God's megaphone, or um, maybe it's a, a skill that we've already acquired. And so skill building, truth seeking, a boldness, a braveness, the, the reap a cheap type attitude going into the dark island, even if there is no use and, and being committed to something greater than just the pragmatic idea of utilitarianism. Would he have gotten in the boat if he wouldn't have thought there was a bloodthirsty Sorn chasing him from the other side? <laughs> right. I mean, it's, I know. you know, you throw yourself into the unknown and once everything's unknown, you latch onto the first thing that's familiar and hope that it's good. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's obviously the grace of the whole situation. He's not that he's making good decisions out of fear, but that's where God can come to us without diminishing himself and help us where we are. We don't really have to earn his grace. We just have to ask for it or, or be open to it or open our hearts to it. He now, does pray. 
went right after he runs away. Yeah, he's yeah. he says that prayer, and then right afterwards, it talks about that he he felt a little bit more something about in touch with himself, and then also the planet or something. Mm-hmm. But while he's before he meets the cross, he's he's experiencing the uh, psychological phenomena of isolation hmm. and madness. He starts talking to himself. Oh yeah, you see the some like that was interesting. Um, solitary confinement now is considered a form of torture because of how how heavy it weighs on us. And if you and if you need an evidence and data points for the how real the subjective experience of our minds is, I mean, you look at okay, this person was alone for a night, and the materials look looks at that and says okay, and then you skip to let's where are the things happening? Nothing's happening there. Well, all the subjective subjective experience of loneliness, wondering if he's even on the dark side of the moon, and that being, in in a way, not farther from Earth, but his experience, he felt more isolated because of the directionality and a whole planet being between him. And it, it's just you know the subjective subjective reality of your experience is far more influential than even the physical reality. Yeah, I like that. There's a little bit of a toss away line about, well, how else would boats work? <laughs> because to me, that was one of those, all right, touch point on something that although you're having the subjective experience, well, how else were boats supposed to work? Right. In a, in a planet where there's gravity, some type of gravity and liquid and whatever, and displacement of that liquid, it was going to be a boat. Yeah. He's like <laughs> grasping desperately for familiarity. Yeah. And then there's more rational mind is like, well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> So, so the, he, he starts this journey with, with the Haras to, he doesn't even know where he, as far as he's concerned, it's delivering him to the Sorns because he doesn't know the language yet, but he's learning some of the language by pantomime, by, by sign language with gestures to Hyoi. We'll find out later. This is Hyoi. And it's not a fun journey. Yeah. Why isn't it a fun journey? <laughs> he's very seasick. The way it's written is, I think, very clever. He he thought he was a good sailor. At least he hoped he was a good sa- sailor, at least ellipsis. <laughs> and then the worst happened not once, but several times. <laughs> and just that, I know I know what that's like. You can think of even Shasta on Bree's back going through the desert. Smell of hot horse, smell of hot self. And just this, the drudgery of this journey. And that doesn't feel like, you know, when you get your mind filled with the the dreams and the conviction of your adventure and then actually living out that adventure is just hard <laughs> this these are exactly the types of moments where he went within a relatively short amount of time from the excitement of learning that pioneering this new language and taking it back to thrown up on a boat like <laughs> so, <laughs> even his description of seeing the eels in the depths of the water and that kind of merging with his vision of the water and that visual experience of nausea yeah it was just so well it's so easy to relate to even though i've i've never actually been to mars if you can believe it um but i could relate to that experience believe it. <laughs> i believe it um so one one thing he tries to that his brain starts working on pretty, I feel like pretty soon into now that he's living with them is trying to figure out the hierarchy that exists on the planet between the different species, and he seems surprised that whichever dom is the dominant species, which he eventually starts to think, okay, it's the Sorns, they're the intel intelligentsia, they're the <laughs> why does he why they're do the think elite he, class? He, why does he think that 
Sorens are? Well, I, th- I think it's because every, I mean, all of his experience, all he's doing is taking everything he knows from earth and overlaying it on the planet mm-hmm. and everywhere that it lines up, he's like, oh, this is like earth, which is what we all do with all of our knowledge. And, and then he slowly, he starts to see all the places where that breaks down, not all of them, but starts to see areas where that breaks down. But, you know, he compares it to earth and that the, I'm going to get these names wrong. The Harasa are the lower class. They're the ones that are more into, you know, hunting and, and poems and literature, whatever, but not not really scientific in his estimation. And he is from the intelligent. He probably sees himself as the intelligentsia. Uh, and then you've got this upper class who kind of rules over, or at least benefits from this lower class. And then eventually you get to, you know, his, that, elite super elite upper class which deals in the mystic arts right yeah i like that you say the mystic arts because there's that (laughs) there's that convergence of magician and scientist that we see in weston that we see in uncle andrew jadis um that we like to say that science is this cold hard fact truth but really and it's the way it plays out and i'm not saying science is like a method for truth finding but scientism or or, um using science as a religious belief of all truth you know the science is settled quote unquote um type idea and it's it's got all the elements of religiosity you know the mysticism to it and the the intelligentsia being possibly (laughs) this almost like oligarchical dominance hierarchy with power of wisdom of of knowledge yeah but but i mean that after they they go on the hunt that does break down he recognizes well i've talked to an ll deal which back in my home world no one would have believed it and none of my colleagues would have believed it and so that order understanding of how the order works already has kind of been nuked and he's gonna have to figure that out again yeah, he has an he has an experience with the Hrosa of the true noble savage, which is actually just a mythology. I mean, you savagery doesn't bring with it nobility. And so he knows that, but it's kind of a mythology that we keep even in our world. It's like we like to think we have movies. I'm thinking of the gods must be crazy. <laughs> it's a good movie. <laughs> but just that this idea that somehow this primitive and it's this condescending uh, patronizing type perspective. Oh, oh, these these lesser they're but they're good. And we kind of try to pat ourselves on the back and say, it's okay that I'm being demeaning because I'm they're they're good. They know better. Right. So when you use the word savage, how are you using it? Well, the, the from Ransom's perspective, he's seeing them as savage or technologically from, primitive. Yeah. They're living basically in like a camp like village. It's not they're not living in skyscrapers and they're not using computers. They only have the one shell and the only food that they way that they cook food is by boiling it. And well, this is interesting to me because we've talked in the past about IQ and you within your career have I don't know how many IQ assessments you've had to do across different students and whatever else you spend a lot of time in this world. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about how difficult it is not to, if you are a high IQ individual, start to base a lot of your self-worth on that. The world is going to give you a lot of ego reinforcement, reinforcement (laughs) (laughs) for that. That's where your value is based. Mm -hmm. And yet you've made the comment to me sometimes that you would love to have average kids 
Yeah, the I mean, obviously, intelligence is not just a singular measure, right? There's you can look into the mul- theories of multiple intelligences. The intelligence that we can easily measure, processing speed, uh, things that you can processing speed is the one that we experience with ourselves the most. And if somebody is like really quick on math problems or whatever, we that's a smart person. And we say, there's the smart box and we check it, right? And there's a lot of different elements towards, of intelligence. And there's, a, I mean, you can, if you ever see one of these uh, online IQ tests, they're always trying to get you to buy something because they're just a sham anyway. But, um, but that idea itself is, betraying the ignorance of what an IQ is. An right. IQ is not something that you can work on and develop and improve. IQ tests are not trying to see how much you've achieved using your IQ. In fact, an IQ test loses its validity if you scored one, you, the first time you took it, you scored you know 100 and the next time you scored 110. Uh-oh, that just means that either the test is wrong or your approach was maybe, or the, even the, the technician, the person who's giving the, the test gave it in a way that was leading to you getting more right than you should. So there's, there's crystallized, there's intelligence that you, you develop, there's uh, achievement knowledge, and that's not really intelligence. That's, that's something else. And so our idea of what intelligence is, is culturally and colloquially is so, is so merit and worth based that because we're always trying to do what ransom was doing with the Hrasa, who actually rules. And we do this in our social circles. We do this in our families. We say, who's actually the better person? Who's the smarter one? And most of the arguments that we enter in is trying to do this assessment of hierarchical ranking. Right. We don't really care about the truth. We're not having these arguments with our family members and our friends and our, our enemies as well. We're not doing it because we really are seeking for truth. Generally speaking, we're doing it so we can put ourselves on this hierarchy of value. And even our own data doesn't show that that's going to be effective. So who's the real intelligent person? The person who's always trying to climb up this ladder of ruling or the person who's maybe satisfied with where, where, where they are and maybe is the noble savage using just the simple things that uh, find satisfaction in life. Well, it, it makes you think of the high probability if you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company that you're also a psychopath. <laughs> right. I mean, but if you really are just bent on climbing that social structure and being at the top and lording over everybody, mm-hmm. you'll probably, I mean, if if that's your desire of your heart and that's where you put all your time and attention, you're probably going to be able to climb that ladder. You're probably going to be able to end up being in charge of a lot of people. Yeah. But it doesn't make you... It doesn't give you more worth. It doesn't give you more value to society necessarily than just, uh, I mean, uh, than a good neighbor who who takes care of the people around them and, and really builds their life on a base of goodness. Yeah, look at the um, lack of empiricism in that type of belief system that money and power will equal, I mean, what? What's, what's it going to equal? Happiness? Is that the hypothesis? And then... None of the data shows that power and money equal happiness. And yet most of us pattern our whole lives under that false assumption. We're all 
not only mystics, but where we believe in a mysticism that is super is superstition. Verifiably false. Yeah, verifiably <laughs> false and, th and therefore superstition. Yeah. And, and that actually afflicts people who consider themselves not religious more than it does the religious person because you know and we've talked about this religious person let's make sure we follow with the caveat you know to yielding to a, a power higher than themselves and a, a true religion based on you know what you and i would say jesus christ and uh and there's other forms of religion but that's the demographic that is looked down on you know when people say oh religion and and believing in the magical daddy figure in the sky they're not talking about people practicing voodoo they're talking about us <laughs> dang it <laughs> oh, ignorance was bliss but thank you <laughs> but you know what if the voodoo practicer practitioners are the ones anyway either way <laughs> should we take a break and then get back to his conversation with hanoi Hyoi. Hyoi. Yes. <laughs> Today's going to be it. a fun day of mispronunciation. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Yeah, should we come back with a quiz? I'll quiz you on some of the Please language. don't. <laughs> Welcome back. We are going to jump to the kind of the crux that Alex pointed out. The yes. conversation that he had with Hyoi. Hyoi. Yeah. So what stood out to you? Actually, I, I think it's Hyoi because it was Hyoi that was he first met. But then Hinora is the one he's learning the language from daily. And then I think he's closest with Hyoi. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be because of, of the thing, the events that follow. Yeah, it's Hyoi. He is trying to figure out, understand this culture that just doesn't make sense with his preconceived premises of what sentience means that in his mind the hierarchy is fundamental if there are three sentient races yeah they've one got, of them and someone's and serving somebody <laughs> he's surprised that they haven't even ju just destroyed each other right right there, that actually used to be the situation on earth if you could believe it yeah you know there were several different types of if you were the dominant kingdom you went to go over everybody else <laughs> right homo sapiens and neanderthals and why aren't there any neanderthals anymore well partially from probably wars and extinction but interbreeding i guess i've got a certain percentage i don't remember what it is of neanderthal don't we all uh, yeah okay i think so <laughs> i'm not sure i'm not sure if we all i wasn't do. gonna let you, let you let that be a patronizing comment <laughs> <laughs> i am northern european and that geographically would indicate that there's more likelihood that I have a higher percentage of Neanderthal right. as my large brow would <laughs> suggest, but he can't figure it out. And he's even, even all these things that Hyoi is confused about with his questions. Like, why would you want to have the season, uh, the season of love prolonged? And Ransom, you know, just takes it for granted that if there's a, if there's a pleasure, don't you want it over and over and over again? And he, he always compares it to food. And he's like, yeah, but you eat every day. So there's this back and forth. He's almost like trying to, and it's funny when you get into the conversations like this, you betray this, this almost, I think it's a desperate uh, grasping for familiarity too on his part. He almost doesn't want to believe it. I think it's because it's, it makes him feel bad about humankind. He's nettled. Yes. Yeah. What is that term? He's a little nettled, right? A little That's nettled by his understanding and that all of a sudden there's this gap between the it's the human 
like the ideal human is able to live in in his words was able to live a monogamous life and live this Mm -hmm. way and they were preconditioned to live like this yes and not that he doesn't you know it's instinctive he he reasons that it must be instinctive and why not instinctive and does that diminish it but then he he does learn to love these hrasa there's just so much goodness to them so I, i don't want to like give the perspective that he's just diminishing their morality because there's some instinctive element to it. But in another book, Lewis even compares our obsession with sex to to what it would be like if it if it cropped up in our in food and you do see this in culture every once in a while. But if we had like a a strip tease of a food like people go into <laughs> he, he uses it from like i guess the access to pornography at that time you go into this theater and there's a woman or whatever and but he's like what if they unveiled this hamburger <laughs> in front of your eyes and everybody's get, you know and it's titillating um that obviously that's demonstrating that as far as the sexual pleasure it's it's to the point of what's the word pathological because it's we're so hyper obsessed with that form of pleasure seeking that even post satisfaction we want to repeat that pleasure over and over and over again that even animals on our earth don't show that same tendency and why would we break free from a natural you could say natural with like a capital n or something that this a natural situation where a hunger once satisfied becomes complete and Hyoi is helping him understand that a pleasure, the end part of a pleasure is part of the pleasure. And almost the beginning. The beginning is part of the pleasure. Oh, yeah. That, 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 the, when he compares it to when they first met. When yes. we first met, that was shallow. It was just an instant and it was over. But now, as we continue to have experiences together and whatever else, that meeting be, will become more and more beautiful, more significant, and he'll know the best how significant when he dies. Yeah, it, it continues to ripen. Yeah. That brings to mind the great divorce. It, bring, it brings to mind any of the, that like life will, we, we will always have lived in heaven if yes. we are in heaven now. That, that feeling that those pleasures just become sanctified and grow as we get closer and closer to heaven because we've, we're living in our lives in such a way and with, with our minds directed towards gratitude and to appreciation of, if you think of looking back at your life and, and counting your blessings and thinking of all of the good things that have happened through your life and appreciation of the life you've been able to live, that life, you see that in really old people sometimes that have actually been able to master this where they look back at their life and when they get into the details, their lives can sound really tough and difficult and yet they still get to the end and they're like, I feel, they're so, they're filled with gratitude at this beautiful life they've been able to live. And that that's what it feels like is it, those moments they were living in the Great Depression didn't feel like they're talking right now at 80 years old. And yet it's ripened with experience and it's ripened with their their perspective that they've refined over time. Yeah, and you, you could take it that from a more materialist type perspective and say, oh, they're just kind of wishful thinking on their past. Don't say bad things about people at their funerals sort of thing. And because what's the point? And, but the subjectivity, we can't get around it. And so you may as well hijack the subjectivity. Yeah. And 
transform your subjectivity so that the meaning of your life and your experience is greater than just the medium it's painted on. And someone, a materialist, might say, okay, you're hijacking your subjectivity, but the end result becomes a person who is more grateful in their life, which I would say probably if you then look at them in a materialist lens, you'd say, oh, well, you've always been this kind to your neighbors and this caring and this whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's actually because you hijacked your subjectivity back here at the beginning yeah. and, and rode that to becoming a better person, actually. Yeah, and I think gratitude, as you pointed out, that's the hammer in the tool belt of the subjectivity hijacker. Yeah. Right, if you want to change your perspective. The star is a burning ball of gas, but even in our world, that's more than what, that's only what it's made of, not what it is. And so you can see the stars and the and the beauty and the meaning behind it. You can see your struggles. And so that's the next part that he goes to, is because ransom brings up is this counterpoint. But but the Hanakra, the Hanakra, this shark, alligator, the crocodile thing. And if you've seen Annihilation, there's like this shark, uh, crocodile hybrid. I, that's what I think when I think of the Hanakra. Um, that movie's trivia. <laughs> Today's been a movie trivia day. <laughs> <laughs> he tries to explain, or he knows through this poetic, he only knows through this poetic understanding that the solution to the hedonic treadmill, the solution to seeking pleasure after pleasure and then your pleasure experience just becoming normalized, this process that leads to all substance abuse addictions, the process that leads to all of our relationships crumbling down because of the objectification of other people's worth and value to us. The way to hijack that and make sure that we don't go down this hedonic treadmill is to start seeing even as it's happening, not just in retrospect, but that the difficult and work center, you work as in like drudgery, the difficult parts of your life are part of this complete symphony. I'm thinking of the Silmarillion and Tolkien's description of the creation of the earth or even Aslan singing, but in, in, in Silmarillion, Mel, uh, Melkor comes in with this discordant note to the song creation of the universe from Eru. And he, he twists that song into that discordant note and sets it up for a musical resolution and it makes the song even more deep and more beautiful. And Hyoi knows this and he's trying to explain it. And this is actually, I want to do the, our quoted text right now. We'll, we'll talk after it, but because this is the way that he talks about it, I think is uh, better than anything I could say about it. So this is in chapter 12 and in the audible version, it starts at 645. How can I make you understand when you do not understand the poets? The Nakra is our enemy, but he is also our beloved. We feel in our hearts his joy as he looks down from the mountain of water in the north where he was born. We leap with him when he jumps the falls. And when winter comes and the lake smokes higher than our heads, it is with his eyes that we see it and know that his roaming time is come. We hang images of him in our houses, and the sign of all the Hrasa is a Nakra. In him the spirit of the valley lives, and our young play at being Naraki as soon as they can splash in the shallows. And then he kills them? Well, not often them. The Hrasa would be bent Hrasa if they let him get so near. Long before he had come down so far we should have sought him out. No, man, it is not a few deaths roving the world around him that make a Hnau miserable. It is a bent Hnau that would blacken the world. And I say also this, I do not think the forest would be so bright, nor the water so warm, nor love so sweet, if there were no danger in the lakes. 
Yeah, he then follows that with a personal experience of going up to where the Balki, where the the Hnaraki, I think it's Hnaraki. <laughs> That's the plural of Hnaraki. Um, where they dwell, you know, where they come, where they breed or whatever, and then they come down into the rivers. And they're this beast, and the, and the Harasa have this almost eternal struggle and battle and and finding the beauty in that. And I just... I know that if the, if we had that situation, I guess that's kind of what like hunting's like or sport hunting is different. See, we, we commodify everything and the ability to live in that harmony without wanting that, wanting to commodify and, and climb up that ladder, just be satisfied with, with it where it is. Let the bookends be bookends instead of think, needing the, the book to go on. I don't know. Uh, maybe that analogy isn't good because... There is an allusion to books going on forever, the greatest story ever. Well, well, I think of people who actually get to the point where they can look at death or, you know, there's certain people that talk about death with that are terrified of it. And that makes sense to most of us. <laughs> and then there are people who actually get to a point in their life where they're ready to move on and they, and they look forward to it. And, and actually, as I say that, I'm remembering a line from Hyoi who says, it'll only be sweeter. He talks about that experience you're talking about and says, you know, when I die. Yeah. That's the only, that's the only other sweeter drink than the one that he had. At Balki, yeah. At Balki. What were you going to say? Just that the difficult parts of our life are what give a, our experiences this dynamic range of interestingness. We have to get outside of the self-conscious comfort and allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. And you can kind of see even this type of attitude is being commodified right now. I mean, how many people are selling their programs about how to take cold showers and, and you know, get swole or whatever? <laughs> you know, like you, you can see even that will try to commodify. And I think it's just take a deep breath, relax. Happiness is not on the other side of the horizon or, or just beyond the horizon. Happiness, this is happiness right now. There's the, there's a line from Andy Bernard in uh, the last episode of The Office, if you're an Office fan, where he says, I wish you could tell when you're in the good old days, something yeah. like that. And it's, and I think there's even a line from Hyoi about our days being, every day is itself like that process Every, so we wouldn't, why would you want to go back to a day when today is one of those yeah. right now? You're having it right now. And that's a, such a difficult process, but that's like, if you want to feel satisfaction, that's where you got to be. And it's this weird goal that I want to, I want to see, like, I want to see that. What What's my goal? My goal is to not need goals. <laughs> my goal is to get to a place where the goal isn't, isn't what I have to wait for to be satisfied. And sometimes I'm there. I think that's kind of the story of the human life is dipping in and out of that satisfaction to the point that when you get to the moment of death, it's not that you're just like, I'm here. I finally made it to the goal, but you can be terrified of it and realize that the terror of death is a human experience and being human is what our, our responsibility is. You don't have any other responsibility than to be you. And that means good, bad, all together. And that itself, you know, it, when discordant notes arise, maybe it requires 
the intervention of Maleldil or of Manwe Sulimo of Eru Ilavatar. These are names from the Silmarillion. <laughs> and I'm lost. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it requires that sort of intervention to kind of change that discordant note. And maybe you need to yield to that higher power in order to see the beauty in the suffering. But that right there, we're, we're in it right now. Every life is worth living. And you can find the beauty. In fact, that is the beauty in the turbulent life. One of our podcasts, our book club members, said to me the other day, you know, you guys talk about, you, you talked about the beauty and suffering. He quoted, you know, pain is God's megaphone. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, well, your grandma, this is my cousin, Matt. And he's like, hey, your grandma, she slipped and broke her hip. And she sat on the floor for a long time before someone finally showed up to help her. And she described it as the worst pain of her entire life. And he's like, I asked her, like, was that a was that an experience that you'd say you learned something from? You grew. It was it was educational or a growth experience. And <laughs> my sweet grandma said, No, not at all. Yeah, <laughs> it was awful. Right. Yeah. And so he kind of said, Well, you know, is is pain really God's megaphone? Is it always a growth experience? Or that just felt like pain for absolutely no reason. Right. And if you want C.S. Lewis's take on it, he has a whole essay about oh, good. You know, theodicy. That's what the problem of pain is actually all written about. It's not called the beauty of pain. It's called the problem of pain and the idea of theodicy, understanding how can a benevolent God allow for even natural evils. He uses the example of uh, a lightning storm causing a fire and burning a deer to death, like a baby doe or deer or something, or fawn to death. Bambi. <laughs> it's like, well, that exists in our earth. How can that exist? You know, the natural evil. I don't think I can do it justice. I'm going to guide you to that essay and also to that book. And then we're going to do it as a book club. And I don't, I don't know if coming to a resolution is the point of it. You drink of life because there death dwells like Hyoi at Balki. That might be sometimes true, but the fact that you can't control it and you can't just make all pain fit nicely into your bookend of an experience I think that randomness and that subjectivity is, is essential for not only freedom, but for us to understand that the a necessary ingredient in this whole process is yielding. Submission. Yeah. I, the, the experience of someone living 200 years ago with just having to, if your kid got sick, there was a really high percentage that it wasn't going to turn out, yeah. they're going to die. You know, you had to be submissive. It was a humbling experience to be alive. Mm -hmm. And now it feels like most of the human experience is bent around bending the elements to our will so that we don't have to feel like we have to be submissive. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we want everything to be nice and clean and, and, and neat in order to feel, it's like, even though I eat food this way, like I like to make sure that each bite is, you, know, you get to eating a salad and you every single element of the salad is on the fork before I put it in my mouth. It's a type of OCD. It's <laughs> it's, it's weird, and, right? And But it's we have that tendency to want to understand everything, right? And I say understand in reference to that weird salad idiosyncrasy, but <laughs> that is that is part of it. This This inclination to like be God. To say, I did this. I made that. I'm the creator. I'm the controller. Everything is 
safe and familiar. And so I don't have to do anything when I'm afraid. But you cannot drink fully of Balki if you if you can't do it while you're afraid. If you have to overcome all of your fear in order to think that that's what courage is, that's not what courage is. Courage is doing the hard thing when you're afraid, when it's hard. And it's a transcendent type of experience called joy that, that is the fruit of this type of experience. Yeah, you might say, I'm happiest when I'm comfortable. And I'm like, well, then I'm going to put an asterisk by happiness when you say that because it's not the fullness of joy. And the fullness of joy is existence and this experience that requires a yielding to something greater than yourself, which means that you're, I don't know, I can't see my next step, but I'll, I'll take it anyway, because I trust in something greater than, than the arm of flesh or than my own understanding. So one, one part I really wanted to hit on, and I think there's at least two or three things I know. we want to make sure we get to, uh, when, when Hyoi gets shot yeah, and he's talking to he, I think it's the other one is Huin. Huin. I remember that because it's a similar name to the to the mare in, in Horse and His Boy. I, I love this line by Lewis where he said, Ransom repressed the insistent whiny impulse to renewed protestations, regrets, just to hear them offer their pardon. And I think of how often we are mimicking a, what we would see as a good attribute being penitent yeah. or apologetic or things in social situations um, because we're really trying to get something. Yeah. I'm really just trying to get you to say, I'm sorry, so I can hopefully feel a little bit better and how selfish that was. And I love that Ransom sees the selfishness in that act, that apologizing at this point, given the relationship and the communication that he has with those people was selfish and he needed to, shut up <laughs> and go on the mission they're sending him. And that's, that's cool because I mean, this friend that he developed just got shot by his people and he, he recognizes all of that. And, and I love his resolution that comes out of that. I thought it was really beautiful. Yeah. What Quinn says is it's not a question of thinking, but what an elder says, this came right after the kind of a half disobedience defiance to an order by an Eldil. They're in the middle of a Hanakra hunt. Kind of. They got hit by a Hanakra right after. Yeah. They're, they're, his, <laughs> his, he's finally getting it. He's finally understanding that lesson that, that Hyoi was telling him. And he's, he's overcoming a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the weakness of fear and being in the fear, finding bravery. And he's starting to get, understand the Hanakra in the way that the Harasa do. And the Eldil comes and says, okay, you're done. Yeah. Time to move on. He's like, no, but I need to, I need to complete this. I need to put all the elements of the salad on my fork. I need, I need to feel like I have control over my learning. And so he's like, no. And he, he, he does it out of some sense of conscience that he, that he sort of disobeys. And they do, he does become Haman Nakrapunt as uh, Hyoi's last words <laughs> to him are. C.S. Lewis describes death very gory here. There's this, there's this majestic type battle element and he doesn't want to confuse that with the horrors of actual he always reminds war. us 
yeah. real There's a romantic element and then there's an actual, I mean, the, the romantic element is where you can be get to in your own heart, but the actual process is just awful. But he sort of, he still sort of disobeys. He, I, what was it? It was maybe like five minutes since the Eldil told him that he actually follows the rules of the Eldil, but he needed to listen immediately. I'm that, bad at that. That's hard for me. Me I, too. I'm way too... When I feel like I have an impression, I kind of get into my head about it and try to think, what well, was that an impression? And yeah, should I? And by that point, a lot of times it's, it's past. Yeah, it's not a matter of thinking, but what an elder says. I think of this from the perspective of parenting. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about this is you'll see this. We all have this impulse, but it's pretty obvious in children. You have a, a, your child is doing something that you're asking them. You've given them a command from your godlike stature as their parent, which I think is a, slightly appropriate if you want to work in a direction you got to practice somehow <laughs> but you give a command an order a rule to your child and they'll do it do the defiance one last time it's like okay put down the put down the stick we're going or don't throw any more sand at the beach or whatever you're throwing sand at people don't do that <laughs> and then they'll do it one more time and then they'll then they'll listen and it seems like they're obeying except that they got to do it on their terms and in their way that's you got to be careful with allowing that type of obedience, the obedience with an asterisk, the obedience, but in my way. And that doesn't, that won't lead to your child becoming somebody who trusts you implicitly. They're, they, they'll need to always trust themselves before they'll come up to the Chesterton fence and just knock it down instead of thinking, maybe it's here for a reason. Maybe I shouldn't just knock it down. And they need to see you uh, and, and what you're asking them to do as being so firm and solid that when they're running toward the street, all you need to say is stop. And they don't run for 10 more yards and then stop. They need to stop now. And it's hard as a parent to be so exacting in the demands that you make for your children, mostly because what types of demands are we, are we making? Are we making kind of just off the cuff demands? Are we structured enough to make sure that the demands that we give to our children are just and meaningful, but then to help them learn that process of listening the way you need them to listen and not just do that one last defiance. And this is Ransom doing the one last defiance. Now, he does get a good from it. They, including Hyoi, who wanted to be a Hanakrapunt all his life. That's the last thing he says before he gets shot. That is a good, but it's not the good. I mean, he, he paid for that good with his life. And it wasn't actually his fault. It was Ransom's fault, you know? And what, what else would have come? And that's the thing. You know, I think of the scriptural phrase, therefore they have their reward. Right. If you want to go be obedient for the fear of man and what's to show off that you're the more righteous person to your neighbors and you shout it on the on the rooftops and from the corners, look how 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 much pain you feel when you're fasting or how, how your knighthood of infinite resignation, how that you're so good at it and you go and and Jesus says, if that's what if you're doing it for the praise of man, you'll get it. You'll have your reward. But you won't get the better thing. And maybe we don't even know what the better thing would have been because God only tells us our story, right? I, I see in that process what one last defiance, what it could cost us. And of course, you can, you can even understand Ransom. He's not, 
he's not in this culture that it's like, it's not a thing. It's not a matter of thinking. It's just do, when an elder says so, you do it. Does he say that's pups talk or something? <laughs> something yeah, exactly. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cubs talk. With the, cubs talk. Just that total yielding and, and that we as humans, we want to do that one last defiance and it it does have consequences and it's hard to teach your children that, but that's one thing that I want to help my children teach with benevolence. I don't want to be just this tyrant father, but you don't have to be a tyrant if you follow through without anger. You follow through with consequence, knowing that consequence is the path to joy that just because an, a discomfort is implied or applied to your child's life, that's not going to nullify all goodness like Hyoi taught us. So for the the last moment, so after this this all happens, Ransom makes his resolution that he's going on the journey. Yeah. And I love this moment that he resolves in himself that he is going to complete this journey regardless of his moods and how they change for the rest of the time. And that's immediately tested before the end of the chapter, but he goes back to, but he had his resolution. Now, I, I love this because having a resolution that you make and then just continue keeping regardless of what happens can seem to, I know to some people who aren't Christian, who look on somebody's like, okay, we like I made a covenant that I'm going to follow Christ and I'm going to try and do this. That seems sheep-like. It seems kind of crazy that you would just commit to something and go all in. I think it, it doesn't give credit to the knowledge and learning that you had up to that point when you made that promise and, and like the basis for it. And then how you remake that as you remake that promise and that resolution. But um, I, I think there's just an incredibly valuable lesson to be learned here in what Lewis is trying to teach us about how we make those resolutions and how it carries us, can then carry us through this next part of the journey coming up. Yeah. The, per the person who's going to look down and call that blind faith Right. Uh, it doesn't have the data that you have. And they, th they assume that if, if they don't have the data, you don't have it either. That's yes. very unempirical. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> That's non-scientific. To just assume that if you don't have evidence that nobody else does, and you, you haven't put in the, the work and taken the responsibility and paid the price for, for growth, then nobody else can be grown. What a what a crazy cub like <laughs> talk <laughs> and, <cub> talk. <laughs> and 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 judgment. It's just so unempirical. It's so mystical to have that type of perspective. And you could look down on people and say, Oh, I've been where you've been. Like, are you doing what he's doing? Are you doing what she's doing? Are you doing the because they're doing hard work. They're dedicating themselves to something greater than themselves, and you're not. So I don't think you have evidence to say you've been where the faithful have been. You might have had a cub-like perspective of what it means. You may have thought you grew past it because you learned some other materialistic or reductionist factoid and it made you really comfortable and you think happiness is comfort and I'm just going to stay here. Don't do that thing that, that counter, that contradicts my gospel of comfort. How dare you? 
oh, you must be below me and I'm going to come in with this, this uh, timid condescension really, really desperate that you believe me because if you can, if you believe me, if you believe my condescension, uh, condescending attitude, attitude toward you, then maybe the insecurity will be, um, resolved in my own heart. Right. You can see the psychological effects that go through people who are so desperate to get other people to believe what they believe. Right. And to be so skeptical as they're skeptical and be so demeaning and materialistic and reductionist as they are. So that was a little condescending on my part. I could tell. I could tell. I can tell the the tone in my voice and the, like even the rhythm of the way no, I speak. No, when I, I'm getting I think there's a lot of value. You need. We need to be able to have these conversations to recognize condescension wherever you're at. This isn't a well, you non-Christians condescending. This is condescension goes both ways all the time. Yeah. And this conversation is super valuable to me both to identify it when it's when it's occurring outside of me, but also identify it when I'm the perpetrator and I need to back up. And I think so many times Lewis is always trying to bring in this lesson of humility into everything he's writing. And we all can use a dose of that. So yeah, and I, think... I will allow any, <laughs> <laughs> any uh, traces of condescension for the this educational is... purposes of this podcast. This is a safe mercury. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you can just judge things by their fruits. The fruits are Ransom's walking toward the sorn. He's doing something that is hard for him, is the, the opposite of everything he thought was what he wanted because he has something greater than himself that he's now going toward. And it leads him into the cave of Orgre. If I wanted this to force this whole process into a chiasm like I obviously did, I would say that the first sentence of chapter 15, I would like that to be the last sentence of chapter 14, where he comes into the cave and then Orgre says to him, come in small one. <laughs> and that kind of like, just like I neatly want to put everything on my fork, <laughs> puts bookends on this chiasm. Interesting how that was very apropos and ironic. But that is where we are as we go into the our next episode, which will be chapters 15 through 22 and the epilogue. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being in our book club. We hope you'll continue with us. Next episode, we will cover chapters 15 through 22 and the epilogue for Out of the Silent Planet. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainair.media, M-T-N-A-I-R. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app. And if you don't want to write a review, you could just tell us what is your favorite character from the Narnia series. Or if you did have to eat dinner all day, what dinner would you choose? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. All right, see you next week. <laughs>